From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing the best of website development and internet marketing to you for an affordable price. If you need any, anything on the internet side, if you just need better marketing, give them a holler. They will help you out for a reasonable price. All right. Well, <laughs> that was an interesting, uh, interesting day for Florida State. Came into the day, uh, the coaching staff had fairly high hopes, high expectations about uh, how this early signing day could transpire. Felt like they put themselves in position to uh, to really bring in some difference makers that were badly needed on this roster and to take a, a major step towards this this program being competitive in the way that they need to be with, with the programs that they want to be competitive with. And <laughs> safe to say that the day did not go as planned or hoped there. Uh, I mean, th- the day started off with the with, sort of inauspiciously with the news of Dillingham to Oregon, which, I mean, look, if if you weren't expecting that, at this point, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I would have advised Dillingham to take that job. You have an opportunity to to take a new job in a place that has recruited well the last couple of years. They they supposedly have a, a quarterback out there that the last coaching staff felt like was going to be a uh, a really solid player starting next year. So they're they're you know reasonably well situated there. They're in a conference that Oregon has mostly dominated. You know, they obviously they got. Uh, beat up pretty badly by uh, Utah twice this year, and uh, and USC is not going to be uh, uh, what they have been in recent years. USC is going to be the buzzsaw out there. But look, if he if he has any success in that job, he's he's going to be able to parlay that into, into more. And he's putting himself into a position to ha- to call his own offense, to clearly be the guy there, and to move up in the profession. I would have, I would have advised him to take that job as well. So no surprise there again, inauspicious to have that as the start to your early signing day, but you know, that was expected. And I think they made the right moves in terms of moving uh, Atkins up to the offensive coordinator role. He's going to call the plays from the sideline. Uh, and obviously Mike Norvell is going to still have a, a strong hand in the, in, in the offense. It's still going to be Mike Norvell's offense, but uh Atkins doing a lot of the, the coordinating, you know, handling a lot of the game planning stuff and doing all the things that a coordinator does when he's in, uh, when he's running a, a head coach's philosophy. Uh, but he's going to bring his own wrinkles to it and, and all of that as, as every coordinator does. So either way, there's going to be a lot of continuity there. It keeps the best recruiter on your offensive staff there. And it keep, and again, you've got a guy that is a, an elite offensive line coach. And that's really important right now in terms of developing this program. So uh, that's a good move that probably keeps him there for at least two, three more years. Uh, I mean, it could, he could theoretically get poached for a bigger job after that, but you know, he's probably going to stay put as offensive coordinator for the foreseeable future until he gets an opportunity to be a head coach. And, and this puts him in position to do that. So that makes a lot of sense. And then elevating Tony Tokars to, uh, to, to quarterbacks is, again, another good uh, a good arrangement. It's a guy that I think is going to be uh, really energetic and, and able to recruit on, on, on the trail. Uh, he's been sort of the understudy to Dillingham at the quarterback position for the last couple of years. 
And, and, and again, they're setting this up for once Atkins moves on and, and takes a head coaching job somewhere, which he surely is going to be able to do uh, as long as this staff has any sort of success moving forward. If Atkins is able to move up to, uh, to a head coaching job, then the next guy to develop for that offensive coordinator position is Tony Tokars. So, uh, you know, you just kind of continue to develop coaching talent uh, along with that and, and, and get a good, uh, a good process for making sure the guys are prepared to run in continuity with, with what, what you want. And you want talented guys that can do that. So that, that's a good setup. After that, though, <laughs> yikes. Man, did the wheels come off of what was a really promising. I mean, you talk about it coming into, the, into signing day, and I'm glad I didn't. Uh, I, I'd wanted to do a uh, pre-signing day class uh, or, or pre-signing day uh, podcast to talk a little bit about, about some of these things. And knowing you know that there was a lot of positivity and all of that, I'm glad I didn't end up rec- recording it because it would have sounded ludicrous today. Uh, although again, I mean, if you, if you told people before today that, well, you know, Florida state would get their best recruit and arguably the best, the, the top recruit in the country poached by an FCS program, people laughed at you, but that is the, that is the new waters that we are sailing in at this point. <laughs> and, you know, that's, there's just not much to say there. I mean, well, there's a lot to say, but and we'll, we'll say it, but, uh, you think about this from Florida State's perspective. I mean, Jacksonville State and now Jackson State, uh, FCS programs that have something to do with Jackson, have really given Florida State the business this year. I mean, Florida State's now got two losses in in a year to FCS programs, two very painful losses. One cost them a bowl, and the other cost them their top recruit. And you know, this was not something that anybody I know thought had any possibility of happening. There were rumblings, I mean, behind the scenes. I mean, you did hear that, you know, Hunter might, you know, he might not be as solid to Florida State as it seems. I mean, he says all the right things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's just something not computing. I mean, there were some of those rumblings, but everybody, you know, assumed that may, that that the the logical place, the other place that he would go would be Georgia. And, you know, if he'd been planning on Georgia, I mean, this is one of my arguments on this is, look, if the kid's planning on flipping to Georgia, there's no reason to wait. I mean, he'd have just done it. If he was going to be, if the appeal was going to be to go and play at, you know, a more talented place, you know, place where you could win championships and, and, uh, and all of that, if that was the appeal, then, you know, he, he wouldn't have been a committed Florida state to begin with, but he really bought into the idea of being a, a trailblazer and a, and a path breaker, uh, bringing Florida state back and being that guy to set the example and, and be like, no, I'm not going to follow the crowd. I'm going to be a leader. That was a big part of what he bought into in, in, in all of that for Florida state. And so it didn't make sense that he would have been really amenable to those other things. And, you know, you talk about the, the, uh, the money aspect of things in terms of the, you know, ridiculous amounts of money that are being uh, thrown around and have been thrown around since before the, you know, name, image, and likeness stuff uh, came out, you know, before that was, that was introduced uh, formally, as Jimbo Fisher said uh, on, uh, on, on a radio show today, or I guess television slash radio show today on Feinbaum, uh, as he said, you know, th- there was NLI long before it was legal. And he's absolutely right. I mean, the, the kind of money that you're seeing now, that stuff was happening behind the scenes. It, you just didn't know about it. Or most most people maybe didn't know about it, but 
I mean, that stuff was happening. And and again, if if he'd really just been interested in making a little bit more NLI, then he'd he'd easily been able to do that. So you know, the thought was, well, you know, it doesn't look like you know the 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 most logical other option Georgia is going to hit, and nobody from the Georgia side thought they'd get him. So naturally, that's that. I mean, he's going to Florida State. And it turns out that Hunter all along was playing everybody from the Florida State staff to other recruits. I mean, he was the lead recruiter for Florida State for for two years. He played the other staffs recruiting him. The whole thing was orchestrated to maximize the shock and generate headlines today. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of money involved here. I mean, Barstool uh, and... And that whole group uh, introduced a lot of money to this equation. One, at least uh, $1.5 million. I've, I've heard some quotes that are a good bit higher than that. I mean, I obviously haven't seen the contract, but I mean, he's making at least a mil and a half just from that. And look, it's awfully hard to turn that down. But I mean, let's be honest, he could have gotten a, pretty close to that or, you know, a very competitive kind of offer if he'd really presented his handout to some of these major SEC programs that are that have been willing to to play with figures that are absurd. He he could have gotten a lot a lot of money. I mean, he could have at least closed that gap a lot. Now, if we're talking three million, as some people have said, yeah, that's probably too rich even for Georgia and even for Alabama. I mean, those programs are going to say thanks, but no thanks. We've got enough. Uh, you know, we got enough elite defensive backs here. But I mean, yeah, the barstool money is obviously life changing and and. If, if I'm if I'm him, I, I'm probably taking that deal. I mean, good for him. He that's that's generational money. That's family changing money. I mean, even if even with the uh, with the with the tax, you know, even if the government takes half of that, you still get seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And you know, you just do the Chris Winky thing and and buy some real estate, and you're set for life. You know, buy buy a few rentals, and you're set for life. Now, hopefully, the kid has some people to help him. Uh, actually manage that and and do the right things with that money, but you know that that's that's a lot of money and that's that's life changing. You can't begrudge him for taking that. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people are are you know a little bitter about the hat throwing thing and the way that this all came out on the final day. But it's pretty obvious that that was part of the job. They wanted this to maximize clout, and when you're when you are being paid to bring eyeballs and to generate attention, you do what you're told to do on that. And they, they were prepared. They, this is all part of the, of the larger project that they're going to do. And that's surely going to be part. I mean, they had cameras there and everything else just surely going to be part of the documentary that they're shooting, that they're going to, that they're, that they're essentially paying him for at least ostensibly. So, yeah, I mean, it is about the money. I mean, Florida state was not coming up with $2 million for, for Travis Hunter. But it's also not just about the money either. I mean, that's the other thing is, again, he could have gone somewhere else for more money than Florida State was going to be able to offer to begin with. But what Jackson Jackson State offered was not only that kind of money, but he's also going to be able to play for a legend that he admired and imitated since childhood. And the pitch was for him, again, to be a pathbreaker and a leader of a revolutionary movement for HBCUs. And this is, I mean, this is, there's been a lot of discussion about this. I mean, a, a lot of folks seem to be under underestimating or under not fully understanding the, the impact or the appeal of that side of things on the recruiting pitch for 
Deion Sanders and Jackson State to say, look, you can be the guy who opens the, the floodgates of top talent to HBCUs so that essentially black money stays in the family. You can be that guy. You can be the guy who starts the revolution. And for a guy like Hunter, who, again, the reason that he stuck with Florida State or the reason that he wanted to start with Florida State to begin with is he wanted to be that guy, that revolutionary leader to begin with for Florida State. That turns Florida State's main appeal on its head. So Florida State saying, come here and be a pathbreaker. Don't just go where you can just be another cog in the wheel. Don't just go where, you know, you can, you know, where they're, they're going to win without with or without you and you can just make them a little better. Come here where you can be the dude who changes it all. Well, Jackson State has even more of that as, as an appeal. Jackson State can say, yeah, well, Florida State's been that. And, that you know, they're going to have lots of talent too. You know where you'll really be revolutionary. You know what will really shock the world. You know what will really change things and not just change things on the field, but socially. This is a, this is a big statement. Come here. So now he's the revolutionary recruit who, you know, starts the exodus of talent to HBCUs and makes HBCUs competitive. You know, you start getting NFL talent in the HBCUs and more NFL talent wants to join it and compete. That's, that's the idea. So that's a really appealing thing for a young man on top of the money. And yeah, look, it is about the money. He's not going there unless he gets that money. But he's also not going there unless it's Coach Prime. And he's also not going there without that HBCU bring, bringing, bringing his talents to, to HBCUs to bring that kind of social change. He's not going there without that either. So the whole thing was the perfect storm. And there's just nothing Florida State was going to be able to do about that. Nobody else is getting him either. I mean, if he'd have been committed to Georgia on you know all this time and then suddenly done the same thing, the same factors would have applied. And lots of Florida State fans would be you know hooting and hollering about you know how that happened to Florida or Georgia or whoever. Instead, it was Florida State that got publicly dunked on. But you know everybody was beaten for Hunter. Now, as for Dion, I, I know a lot of Florida State fans are really ticked off. Because, you know, he's, he burned his alma mater. But the fact is that Dion is not about Florida State. He's not about protecting. What, what good is it for him? Like, what he has no skin in the game for Florida State. Dion's about Dion. And honestly, he should be about Dion. I mean, look, if, if you're going to be a coach somewhere, be that coach. Get the best players you can. Now, there is certainly another side to this for Dion. I mean, it's, it's been, it's not exactly been a secret that Dion has been pretty ticked off with Florida state. I mean, you got to remember he's, he, he's friends of Willie Taggart and felt that Taggart got an unfair shake at Florida state. Whether he's right or wrong about that is not something I'm going to go into here, but Dion felt that, that Taggart did not get a fair shake at Florida State. And look, I was in the room when Dion talked at, uh, at one of Taggart's coaching clinics about how important it was that Taggart succeed at Florida State for reasons off, off the field. And look, I understand what he's saying. And I talked to him, you know, I talked to Dion 
after after that whole that whole thing, talk to him individually about some of this stuff. I, I mean, I get where he's coming from there. And then when Taggart didn't succeed at Florida State, Dion wanted to be the guy to come in and fix it. And he has been angry ever since that Florida State didn't hire him as the replacement to fix it. He got a, a, a courtesy interview. And I mean, that was all it was from the Florida State side, but Dion took it very seriously. And I, I heard from some of the folks on the Florida State side that they were surprised by how seriously Dion obviously took it. I mean, he came in with a full presentation and everything else for that, for that interview. And, you know, he was told, look, you don't have enough experience, et cetera, et cetera. So he, and he didn't, I mean, you, if it had been me, I, I certainly wouldn't have hired, wouldn't have hired Dion Sanders either. And I, I still wouldn't right now. And you know, that whole issue of experience and all of that, I do think that matters. But he ultimately, shortly thereafter, decided that he was going to get that experience and he was going to put himself in position to be that dude. But at the same point, this allowed him to basically prove FSU wrong and hurt FSU simultaneously while he's helping himself and demonstrating that, you know, demonstrating to Florida State, at least as he sees it, that Florida State hired the wrong guy, that they should have hired him all along. So he's able to hurt Florida State, hurt Mike Norvell and that staff, help himself at Jackson State, and also further, you know, demonstrate that, you know, Florida State really should be, should have come running to him. So I get it. I, I, I don't, I don't begrudge Dion at all for this. Not at all. To me, congratulations to Hunter for for getting paid. I'm glad to see the kid get paid. You never know what's going to happen injury-wise. You don't know how things are going to pan out when you're a generational recruit. Get yourself paid. I'm glad he's getting paid. And I hope he takes care of of what he's getting in terms of that contract. I I hope he gets gets good advice and, and manages that well. I hope he gets a great education, all of that. And, you know, good for Dion for taking advantage of the rules and understanding how the game is played there. Good for him. Now, obviously, from the Florida State side, none of that really matters now. All of that is just, well, we just got pantsed and kicked in the shorts and dunked on publicly all at once. That's, you know, again, a real shot at the brand. It's terrible for Florida State. But honestly, in my in my opinion, the Hunter thing hurts less than Marvin Jones Jr. going to Georgia. I think that's the one that hurts a lot more from the Florida State side. That's the one that you look at and you're just like, man, that that's that's the real insult to injury here. Because look, with what we know now with the Travis Hunter situation, Florida state was not going to get Travis Hunter and there's nothing they could have done. Nothing. Nobody was getting Travis Hunter with Marvin Jones jr. That's a different thing. I mean, this is a kid who grew up bleeding garnet and gold. Hunter did too, but this is also the son of a guy whose locker is encased a guy who's been in the locker room and around the program forever. And you couldn't land him. And, you know, the game is won and lost at quarterback and on the line of scrimmage. 
corners are great and elite corners are game changing in all sorts of ways. But if you ask most coaches at this point, you can have an elite defensive lineman or an elite corner, which would you choose? Most guys are going to take the elite defensive lineman. Unless, I mean, you're, you got you to have the elite of the elite of the elite corners. And, and maybe Hunter is that. But you've got to absolutely have those dudes up front. Because if, if you can't get to the quarterback, it doesn't matter how good your corner is. He's going to get beat eventually. So that's where, you know, losing a kid like Marvin Jones Jr. really hurts. And the other thing, too, is the addition of Azaria Thomas does help compensate a little bit for the loss of Hunter. I mean, corner was less of a need. And look, Hunter is a special player. I'm not going to be one of those who goes out there and says, you know, well, you know, now now that I see it, you know, Hunter is obviously overrated. I mean, I do think that uh, I'll be curious to see how he does. But I mean, the guy was a special player in high school and he, he balled out and showed himself to be the alpha in pretty much every situation he was in in high school. He's a great player. But at the same point, again, the game is won and lost on the line of scrimmage and a kid that you should get is Marvin Jones, a legacy. And you didn't get him. And ultimately to me, you know, from what I understand, that one was more about the combination of Georgia's really attractive NIL package, name, image, and likeness package, which Georgia, they, they, hit, they have hit the ground running there, as you would expect, given how they, they handled things before the legalization of the NIL stuff. And, you know, you combine that with the combination of Kirby, Smart, and Muschamp on the defensive side and how impressed he and, and, and his mom were with basically what they, what they bring to the table as a defensive, in terms of defensive development. They just believed in those guys more than anybody else. You combine that with the name, image, and likeness that Georgia was able to get, and, and that won out. And Florida State is behind on the NIL stuff, despite having initially had a head start, partly because, and there's a little bit of irony here, the Florida law, which sort of goosed the NCAA ruling, was passed before the NCAA made its ruling. And as it turns out, the... The, the irony here is that the states that, that pass those laws, like Florida, pass laws that were more limited than what the NCAA actually allowed outside of that. So if you're in Florida, you have to operate on in, 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 a, uh, in an environment where you're not allowed to arrange directly as, as a coaching staff. You're not allowed to connect players directly with NIL stuff, with NIL opportunities. In states out in states like Mississippi, where you know Jackson State, Mississippi State, and Ole Miss are, those programs, those schools can they can do that. They can directly coordinate name, image, and likeness arrangement with players, and they can serve as the middleman to say, "Oh, let me let's let's guide you over here. Let's tell you how this works." You can you can do that in those places, or at least there's more wiggle room there. Florida State has been more conservative and they've had to be more conservative legally because of how it, how it works out at the, at the, at the, uh, in, at the state level. And, and this is why there's already now a, uh, a, a vote to change what's going on there. Uh, you know, Florida is trying to, to change the wording of their own law quickly because they're realizing, uh Oh, you know, UF Florida state, Miami, the rest are, uh, are at a, at a disadvantage very clearly 
as demonstrated by the results of this particular class. So, yeah. And, you know, Florida State also has been lagging for years, as as I've been talking about this on this podcast for, for years, on the investment and resource front. I mean, Florida State has not been fully invested on that side of things really ever. And and that's ultimately why, I mean, that, that was what led to Jimbo Fisher leaving. I mean, he, he'd been saying for years, I mean, going back, he came back immediately after the national title uh, team and basically began preaching that Florida State was about to get passed. And he kept pointing up the road to Clemson. He pointed at Georgia, He pointed, especially once Kirby got hired. And he was pointing at those programs saying, you know, the winds are changing. We're going to fall behind if we don't keep, if we don't invest more in <clears throat> facilities. And he was saying, you know, for years that the refusal to fully invest in <clears throat> facilities would ultimately relegate Florida State to secondary status. And he was right. I mean, the, the, the Taggart staff, when I, when I talked to them behind the scenes, one of, one of them, and I, I've said this on this podcast before, one of them told me Jimbo was right about this place. He was right. He told us, you know, and this coach had talked to, to Jimbo a couple weeks earlier, uh, you know, on the phone. He said he told us that, you know, they wouldn't do this, they wouldn't do that, and that the resources were real tight on that. And, and we're finding that it's every bit as tight or more so than, than what he said. And, you know, note who the top class was this year. Note who the number one class in the country was this year. Be careful what you wish for. That's what I was saying back then, and I, I'm still going to say it. So that's where Florida State is. I mean, they lost, they lost their bell cow re- uh, recruit in Hunter, but that was one that really you can't blame the coaching staff. You can't even blame Florida State for being behind on. I mean, they just were never going to equal that. That was a sp- special circumstance where you have an HBCU who is a, a HBU, HBCU head coach who is a you know, a brand to himself and who is also uh, a, a major employee of a multi-million dollar media company that could pay whatever they wanted to get an elite player to help make a splash. There's only one of those programs that could do that. And one of them that was motivated to go after exactly the guy that they went after. Nothing you could do there, but losing out on Marvin Jones Jr. That hurts. And that's not the only negative from today. I mean, Florida State came into this class, came into this recruiting season with a bunch of needs. If you look at their needs, you go, okay, look, they, they absolutely need an elite quarterback. I think they basically hit that. I, I think A.J. Duffy, I think a lot of A.J. Duffy. I, I, I'm higher on him than services are. I think he's a really good player, and I think he's got great potential. But beyond that, they needed playmakers. They needed guys at the wide receiver position. They needed guys at the defensive end and defensive tackle positions and the linebacker position more than anything else. They needed to, to add playmakers and difference makers at those spots. The spots that can change the scoreboard at wide receiver where they've got some serious weakness and preferably guys that can play right away and guys that can, that can dominate the line of scrimmage on the, defense, on the defensive side and you know run and cover at the linebacker position. That's what they needed. And if you look at what they what they were able to do, they wound up with a with what the seventeenth last I checked seventeenth ranked class, not terrible. But the problem is that what matters more than your ranking is whether or not you filled your needs. 
and you go, okay, wide receiver. They, they really needed to add some, some speed and talent to, to be able to upgrade that room. They haven't signed a receiver. I mean, Devon Mortimer, the slot receiver that they were counting on, kid that runs a 10-7, he, he flipped to Louisville. And you go, wait, you lost, you lost your one receiver commit to Louisville? Yep. And you know he's going to be a guy that's going to go for like 10 catches for a, you know 160 yards and two touchdowns against Florida State in a couple years. I mean, it's just the way that's going to go. And then you go, okay, edge. Well, so much for Mar- uh, Marvin Jones Jr. Well, Nigelic Kelly. Oh, nope. With, uh, with Cristobal going to Miami, that was enough to make, to make that a more comfortable decision for him. He was torn initially between Florida State, Miami, and, and uh, Oregon. I think he was leaning Florida State for a long, long time. I kept hearing very positive things on that side of things. And then when Cristobal went to Miami, that that changed everything. And look, Cristobal is going to be good at Miami. I mean, he's he's an upgrade there, and he's going to recruit the heck out of that out of that situation. He's he's going to definitely get more talent on that campus than they've had. But Kelly, there you go on that. And so basically, Florida State winds up with one defensive end, one edge prospect out of this class out of what you probably say was the best Florida edge class in two decades in terms of, of edge talent. And they got, they didn't get one of the top guys, not one. There were like, there were like five guys that if you got them, you're like, that's, that's a, an NFL edge, no doubt. (laughs) And they didn't land any of their, their targets there. That's a huge whiff. And, off a season where you had Jermaine Johnson demonstrate what you can do in your scheme. You just did not close on, on the edges that you needed. Okay, well, defensive tackle. I got a couple guys I like. But in terms of difference makers, a guy that could come in and, and potentially play right away and play across the defensive line, Tyre West is that guy, top 120 or so recruit. Really, really good athlete. Carries, you know, can carry his weight and move. You lose him to Tennessee? Really? So, well, at least you got, nope, nope, no line. You got one linebacker. You needed at least two in this class. So you're not meeting your needs. And then, you know, to add even more insult to injury, offensive tackle Julian Armella, who, in my opinion, would be the top offensive line prospect in this class, which is a very good offensive line class. Another legacy guy, a guy that should be a layup for you, pushed his decision back. At least as of the, this recording, pushed his decision back and, and instead of signing with Florida State, decided to, to wait on that. And look, it could change. I mean, this may be out of date by the time, by the time this even hits the, uh, the, the, the podcast feed. But I mean, that's brutal. I mean, you look at, that's four whiffs, West, Kelly, Mortimer, and Armella. On top of not getting Marvin Jones Jr. And, and that's not even considering the Hunter situation. So, I mean, those are the kind of difference makers, particularly West, Kelly, Jones Jr. And, and Armella, that you really needed in this class. And they came into this class in desperate need of playmakers and difference makers who had raised the ceiling. I mean, they've been raising the floor. But they... 
they need to raise the ceiling to be able to compete with the with the elites. And they didn't do it. I mean, to me, this is a nice class. It's a nice class led by an excellent quarterback prospect and a strong offensive line class. This is a class that sets you up to be able to win in the future. Yes. But it's not a class that sets you up to be able to dominate in the future. Where are the difference makers? That's really what you got to look for. Where are the guys where you line up and you're like, that is a guy that is a clear NFL guy on the edge, a defensive tackler, wide receiver. Because again, the game these days, if you want to invest your money, you invest your money at the quarterback position, defensive tackle, defensive end, and wide receiver. That's where championships are won more than anything else. And you look at this and you go, where are they? This is, this is a class that's going to take a little bit of time to really make an impact for the most part. Because offensive linemen take years to develop, and I think Duffy's probably going to be ready in another year. We'll see how he, how, how he looks coming into, uh, into spring. I mean, he's, he's a really smart kid, uh, you know, smart guy. He's going to be able to, to, to compete, but not necessarily a guy I'd expect to be a difference maker day one. Really like his future, though, his potential. But offensive line take years to develop. You've got a really good quarterback, but where else are you getting? Where are you getting guys that are instant difference makers? I mean, I see two in Sam McCall, who they're going to start at corner, uh, and Azaria Thomas, who they're also going to start at corner. Both guys may end up outgrowing the corner position, and really, that's the way that they're they're recruiting. You know, the defensive back position by and large is they recruit corners. And then the corners that can't cover quite well enough to be corners on the outside, they move inside to safety. That's what they do. And odds are, you know, you'll see at least one of those guys move back to safety, maybe both. But both of those guys are difference makers. They are, they are the type of, of players that, you know, Alabama, Georgia are getting these days. The type of players that Florida State, when Florida State's been Florida State, have gotten. That's, those are the guys. McCall and Thomas, you go, those are Florida State Traditional Florida State guys. Those are dudes. But aside from those guys, who is really that can't-miss difference maker that's an immediate impact? I don't see one. I see some guys that, that have some things to offer. I see potential game-breaking speed from Rodney Hill. I, I like his versatility. I'm actually higher on Hill than most. I, I like what I see from him. I think, he's, I, I think he can be a game-breaker. But is he going to be ready right away? I, th- I think he's probably going to have to add a little bit of weight. I, I, I'm wait and see there. He's not a can't miss guy. You know, it's not Dalvin Cook, right? Then you've got Destin Hill, who you know left over from last year's class, who top skill guy you signed last year. But frankly, I'm not quite. I'm still not convinced he's not Manti Teo's girlfriend. I mean, is does he really exist? When was the last anybody heard from him? I mean, I know that they're they're still expecting and hoping that he's going to be on campus in the spring, but I mean, this is going to be a strange deal. I mean, it has been a strange deal to this point. I've never seen anything like it. So, you know, and if he shows up, what kind of shape is he going to be in? I don't know. After a year off. I don't know. I mean, those are guys that could upgrade you, but it's not a guarantee. And then you've got the guys that are developmental in terms of, you know, re- they, they show promise. I mean, these are not, these are not bad recruits. There's not a there's not one guy in this class that I look at and I'm like, yeah, he can't play. Not one of those. There were a couple of them last year. But 
you know, you look at this class, I mean, Daniel Lyons and Bishop Thomas at defensive tackle, I like both of them. And they both fit their mold. I mean, they both fit what they want. They're both, you know, quick, violent defensive tackles who can play across the, the line of scrimmage a little bit. They can move around. I mean, Bishop Thomas is violent with his hands. And he, he played the edge uh, in, for his high school. He can run. And he fits the, the nose tackle position really well. I mean, he's 300 pounds already. Has enough size to help relatively early. Maybe not as a true freshman, but, but he, can be, he can be at least a depth guy. And, you know, both of those guys are early enrollees. I like them both. I'll, I'll spend more time breaking each of these players down in, a, in, a, in future podcasts. But, you know, like both of them. But are they, is either one of them a Timmy Jernigan who comes in day one and, and, and makes a difference? No, I, I don't think so. Aaron Hester, I like him a lot. I mean, he's 6'3", about 235. Brings some, some force to him. Again, really violent hands. Projects as a guy that, that is eventually going to be pretty good against the run, can bend the edge. And he, he this is a guy that would have been a great number two or number three edge recruit in this class, a guy that you can develop. And by year two, year three, you're going, this is a really good player. But is he a day one guy that can that that is going to you know help mitigate the loss of Jermaine Johnson? I don't think he's that. I mean, Marvin Jones Jr. is that. But Aaron Hester, probably not. Good player, good potential, but again, more potential than what you're getting with a, a closer to finish product with, with, with Jones Jr. Omar Graham, I, again, another guy I like more than the services. 6'1", but I think he plays bigger than that. Very long for, for that 6'1". I mean, he's kind of Telvin Smith-ish with his arms. And he brings that kind of, I mean, he can run, run, like run like a safety run. And they desperately needed an athletic infusion at that position. But again, he's a guy that he played a lot of quarterback in, 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 in high school. He's going to have to learn how to play the position. I mean, he played, yes, he played linebacker, but he was, you know, a lot more edge guy moving forward. I mean, how well is he, how quickly is he going to adjust to the, the requirements of the linebacker position in college? Is he a guy, I mean, he's an early enrollee. That's huge. But I mean, how, how quickly is he going to be ready both physically and mentally to be able to contribute? I'll, I'll, Break this down later on and, and you know, give a, a, a more educated opinion on this down the line. But, you know, at this point, I look at it and I go, you know, guy that in another year, really good potential. But is he, you know, an immediate impact type kid? I'm not sure. And, I, you know, I think the whole offensive line class is good. And I'll discuss the offensive line in a future podcast uh, in, in a different episode. And I'll do more film breakdown on, on each of these guys on Patreon in, in, in this offseason. But I mean, I don't think any of these offensive linemen are guys that you're coming, that you're saying this is a guy that's going to come in and start right away. And, and frankly, you don't want offensive linemen to come in and start right away. Generally, there are only a few every year that could do that. You know, a couple, there's no Evan Neal in this class, but they're all guys that could develop into NFL players. I think every one of them. So that's good. But again, this staff needs guys that can help them win now. So what that brings us to is portal needs. The, the, the one positive is that they didn't fill up with any guys that are, are dead weight. I mean, they did last year. I think they, they added two or three guys last year that they wish now. And, you know, I kind of said at the time, I'm a little surprised that this was a take. I don't think there's any of those guys in this class. But 
and and you know I didn't mention the ta- the, the tight ends. I mean Courtney and, and Powers, both guys that that are Florida State level players. Fine, I'm good with both of those guys. I mean Powers is going to be a, a more the inline guy. Uh, Courtney could turn into a t- turn into a backer. I mean he could turn into a, a several things. I mean he's he's pretty pretty uh, position versatile, and and they'll find a place for him. But he's a good athlete. So these are guys that, that you can win with. I mean, these are players that you can win with, and they raise your floor. So there's nobody that you go, man, you know, it's just too bad that they, you know, I'm not sure why he was a take. I don't think there was anybody in this in this class that I, I'm wondering why they were a take. Like I said, last year, there was not the case, and I think that they're already paying for that in terms of roster spots taken up, key roster spots taken up. The plus, though, of, of not adding any guys that, that are potential, you know, detritus in that re- respect um, is that they've got that they're going to end up having a little bit more, you know, one or two more spots for the portal, and they're going to need it. They're going to need at least two wide receivers, preferably at least one with with some vertical ability, the ability to separate and and uh, and run, run. I mean, take off downfield, run. Uh, they need somebody who can make a difference on the outside, and they don't have that. And they need to find somebody. They need two edges at this point. I mean, they did talk about moving Briggs back to defensive end due to the lack of edge guys on the roster that can play. It's something I don't like at all. I mean, one of the advantages of this team could, that, that they could have is the depth and talent at, at defensive tackle. And yeah, I mean, you know, maybe you move Briggs to the Fox position and have him play the uh, the role that Keir Thomas did this year. But I just, I think you lose something by having him there as opposed to having him as one of the three rotating guys at, at defensive tackle, you know, three primaries there. And it just shows how thin they are on the edge. But, I mean, ideally you land two edges that, that can help mitigate the, the losses that you've had. I mean, Jared, Jared Verse, the kid from Albany, who's a really good athlete and just still raw, is now an imperative. You've got to land him. And it's not where you want it to be. I think you at, try to add two more offensive linemen, Lyles and Frazier, uh, you know, the center from from – uh, Wisconsin and Fraser, the uh, the offensive tackle from FIU, are the two primary guys there that I would be looking at. But again, you don't know who's going to open up. I mean, I think you try to leave one or two spots in the portal for post spring. You know, they landed one of their key key players last year after the spring. You know, that was Dylan Gibbons. So you know, you try to keep that at least one or two spots available for one of those guys that you know realizes after the spring that he needs to go somewhere else. And they need to add another linebacker, preferably one who can run and cover. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's six, seven guys that I would say, you know, they need in addition to what they already have from the portal, which is uh, Bless Harris. So, you know, they they basically need, they're going to wind up needing about eight uh, portal guys in order to be able to fill some of those gaps in the, on the roster. So, to me, again, they added some nice pieces for the future, and I think this class does raise the floor, and they do they did add a couple of guys that are difference makers. I mean, Florida State level, you know, top elite type players. And I, I, I can't, uh, I, I'm gonna, when I do more breakdown on some of this stuff, again, I really like Sam McCall. I also really like Azaria Thomas, and, and Thomas is a guy that, you know, his brother at Georgia Tech, it, uh, Wanya Thomas is a dude. And if Azaria is anywhere, anywhere near as good as his brother, he's going to be a guy that, that's going to be a difference maker at Florida State. And I think, he, I think he's going to be better than his brother, potentially. But 
those are guys, you know, they, they do bring some, some additional stuff to the table. But, and, and like I said, nice pieces for the future, raise the floor overall, add a couple of difference makers. But this is a tough day. This was a, a very tough day, not the kind of day that Mike Norvell and his staff wanted. I mean, they needed this to be a home run class, or at least a triple, as they're trying to you know move forward and, and build this program. And to me, this class is closer to a double. Uh, it, it's a double closer to a single than to a triple. I mean, it's a double where you're, you're coming in comfortably, I think, to the bag, but closer to a single than a triple. You're not, you're not even thinking about pushing this to three, three bases. And at the end of the day, I mean, there just were not enough difference makers in this class to complete, to compete with the elites. I mean, they were hoping to, you know, work their way into maybe a top six, top five class, even with some of the guys that they're potentially going to be able to add. I mean, you add Tyre West, you add uh, Nigel Kelly, you add uh, uh, Marvin Jones Jr. Coleman, who I think is going to Miami. You add those pieces, and this is this is a top six or so class. That's what they're that's what they're hoping to do. And by the way, Coleman, I I do not think is a five star. I don't understand how he's been ranked a five star for a long time, but that's neither here nor there. We'll talk about that at another point. But still, a guy you want to get. Still, a guy that raises the floor, you know, raises raises uh, raises the level of your of your receiver room. You don't want him to go to Miami, so you know there you go. But this is a class that, to me, raises the floor, but just not enough guys to compete with the Georgias and the Texas A&Ms of the world. This is a class that puts you in position to be, you know, the second or third best team in your in, in the ACC Atlantic, and that's not where they're trying to get. They're trying to get back to the number one spot in the ACC Atlantic. And yes, they're ahead of the Clemson class. They they did finish ahead, but Clemson's got a better roster overall still, and they've got a higher floor than than Florida state does. They've still got more difference difference makers there. So, and that program's further along. So they're in position right now. I mean, this is the kind of class that you expect to be, you know, sort of set the stage for competing for your, for the ACC Atlantic, but not the kind of the of program that's competitive in the, in the college football playoff, which is not where, where they want to be. I mean, they, they don't want to just be competing for a division. They, this Florida state, they want to compete for national titles for, you know, playoff, uh, wins that sort of thing, and they're gonna, they've got a long way to go. They've got a lot of work to do to to get there, and that's going to require more from the twenty twenty three class now uh, than what they'd hoped for. And and uh, they're not going to be able to depend on the home run or you know or a triple out of the twenty twenty two class that they were hoping for. So be back in uh, you know another few days, maybe a little longer than that, depending on uh, how, how my schedule goes uh, to discuss uh, some of the, the players more individually. But those are my sort of overview thoughts after a very long uh, and difficult day for uh, the Florida State staff and certainly for fans uh, who are frustrated to see uh, the Knowles getting dunked on publicly and uh, not landing some of the guys that they were most hopeful to land coming into the day. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealEstate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach and Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast shop at UnconqueredPodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. 
I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.